0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 155, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, and me, Ravi Abbott. And you know, we've been getting that into the show recently. We completely missed our third anniversary last week. This is absolutely
2: <laughs> crazy. We've been doing this for three years, oh man. God. I can't believe it. 155 episodes, it's mental. And we're going to be doing a few changes around here, just a little fresh lick of paint. So I've been slaving away on the website and uh, we're going to be getting some new kind of intros and incidental music and stuff like that. Exciting stuff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing about doing the show for three years is the amount of, the vast amount of people that we've talked to on this show. I mean, while you've been doing this new website, you've been looking through the guest list that we've had, you know, pretty much, well, about 150 guests probably, you know, the Christmas yeah. and
2: all that. It's absolutely crazy because what I've been doing is actually when we started, we didn't tag anything in WordPress. Yeah. So I've been tagging stuff and just the amount of people that if you click graphics or you click music or you click magazines or
1: films, yeah. you
2: just there's so many people in these different categories and it's amazing to see what kind of
1: links them. Well, I mean, you mentioned magazines there and they are some of the most interesting topics that we cover on this show, I think, because people forget just how important magazines were before the rise of the internet that was the only place that you could find out what was happening in the world of games and computers and technology yeah and also I found that they were quite
2: cheeky they had their own kind of different vibe each magazine did their own style and uh, everybody had their own favorites didn't they throughout the whole period from like the 8-bit to even nowadays there's still some magazines going and cover discs. Yeah. How amazing were Oh, they? God, cover discs. <laughs> we, we even moved on to cover CDs, didn't we? Even cover computers with the uh, Magpie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Um, but this one that we're going to be talking about today was one of my most read magazines. Something I bought every month, probably from about mid-1992 until it finished in 1998. And I know you're a big fan of it as well. And this was CU Amiga.
2: Yeah, I absolutely love CU Amiga. By far, Amiga Format was the more popular magazine, but CU Amiga really did a good job as kind of having a alternative approach. Like their their CD, yeah, was a lifeline for me. That that had all the latest stuff on there. They give away software, is like you know, grand's worth of stuff. It was
1: great. Yeah, stuff that was like you know, selling in shops only a year earlier, you would often get on their cover CDs. Yeah, stuff like you said it was worth like a thousand quid and, you know, these high-end ray tracing packages and that kind of thing. And yeah, and you'd get, like,
2: readers' images. It was like, a, you know, Tony Hart's gallery. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I used to love going through all the reader submissions. Because, um, yeah, it was people's, like, homemade games and software and utilities. And mods and, as well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, music mods and the demo scene. I remember they'd often go to, like, all the big European parties and then they'd put all the productions on their CD, like, the month after.
2: Yeah, because I'd have an accelerated Amiga
1: yeah so basically I wanted to run all the like
2: crazy 3d stuff and uh, there wasn't much coming out but these awesome like polish and czech demos yeah. and stuff <laughs> were, were
1: amazing yeah and you think before these cd-roms like you know kind of came out probably about 96 I think See, so you started doing theirs before that you'd have to buy each one individually from a public domain library you know probably about a five or a disc by telling you paid the postage yeah because
2: that was internet access but it wasn't the fastest. No. Uh, no, I, I remember, what was it, first using Napster and being able to download free MP3s in a whole night. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, a really low quality. Yeah, because we, we had like, um, I think it was like four computers at our school. Um, and you could book like an hour on them. And they were running like, you know, um, Windows 95 with, um, you know, Netscape on there. And I remember going on to AmiNet. Downloading files and have to split them in half to get them on floppy disks, you know, and like the hour yeah, I had on yeah. there. But when CDs came along, oh, it was a lifeline, these magazine cover CDs. And today we're going to be talking to Tony Horgan. Now, Tony has got a very long history as a technology journalist. I mean, his original machine was um, a ZX 18, the Spectrum, we moved on to that. And then he got a Commodore 64, which was really where he got, you know, massively into computers. And, you know, CU Amiga originally was Commodore User Magazine, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what the CU stood for. Yeah,
1: and he worked for a lot of those kind of, you know, 8-bit magazines that covered like the Commodore 64. But then when the Amiga, you know, took over, that's when he moved into the 16-bit journalism. And he was actually the last editor of CU Amiga magazine. Took over in 96, and it closed down in 98. So you got to think that wasn't the Amiga's heyday. So it was actually... We did an interview with Ben Vost, who used to edit Amiga format a couple of years ago, didn't we? And it was kind of the same era that Ben covered, really. So it's going to be interesting to find out kind of how they found news and how they kept the quality so high in those, like, last days of the Amiga, as it were. Yeah,
2: that's it, because there wasn't that much software coming out. There wasn't that many games coming out as they used to have. But, you know, they do stuff like tutorials and stuff. And if I hadn't had these CU Amiga tutorials, I I wouldn't have my job doing websites (laughs) now, you know.
1: Yeah, so, um, and even stuff like... Music, Tony was, he was a big music fan. Yeah. And he brought out a couple of records, actually, which we'll talk to him about soon. But I remember like reading about Aphrodite and Cole Cut, people like that that used Amigas to make their music yeah. You know that Tony would always cover. So, really good one. We're going to get the inside story on You Amiga magazine with former editor Tony Horgan. He's our guest on the Retro Hour podcast, and he's coming up in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we've got some really good news stories to talk about, including hooking up gamepads to your Nintendo Switch from the GameCube. If awesome. you want to play a bit of Smash Brothers, everyone needs that. And also, something really cool, a long-lost NES game that's turned up in a mysterious location that you can now play. Now, before we do that, though, of course, next week is now. We did mention, you know, it's a See Amiga episode. I imagine a lot of Amiga fans will be listening in. We're going to be in Ireland next week.
2: Oh, yes, and uh, we're probably going to be very drunk. But, <laughs> I don't believe that.
1: We haven't got a reputation <laughs> Not, not for that, at right?
2: all, no. <laughs> it's, it's going to be awesome. Uh, it's a lovely little event, Amiga Island. As you know, there's a, a small group of people. We go down there we have an awesome time over the weekend, and it's your first time in Ireland, yeah, isn't it, Yeah, I've Dan? never been so to Ireland
1: before, which is crazy, so I'm looking forward to that, you know, prepare in Prepare for the
2: potatoes. There <laughs> is a lot of potatoes. There's even a
1: potato theme park in Ireland. Is that where we're going? Yeah, Land. Is that yeah. really really where we're going, Ravi? <laughs> uh, but also Guinness as well. See, I'm not a fan of Guinness, but you were saying to me that it's, you know, when you drink it in Ireland, it's completely different. It actually tastes uh, a lot yeah, nicer. Yeah, I, I,
2: I didn't like Guinness in the UK, and then I went to Ireland, and I was like... More, more. That's yeah. all I drank. <laughs> no. I Get think that. it's the Irish water. I was like, the Irish Sea.
1: Well, I'm, I'm a vegetarian, so my iron count needs to be raised. That's, that's my <laughs> excuse. So, yeah, it's going to be happening next weekend. We're flying out on Friday morning. Uh, if you want to come along, it's happening in Athlon. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, we'll put all the details if you want to um, come along next weekend. Tickets are still available for Amiga Island. You find all that at theretrohour.com. Also, the same place that you can support this podcast as well. As uh, you know, this show comes out every single week. Like I said, three years we've been doing this now and we couldn't have made this to this stage without your support. So if you'd like to help out the podcast, a little donation is always appreciated. Like Ravi said, we've got a lot of changes coming up and uh, they all cost quids, don't they? Yeah. So very good timing if you would like to help out the show and you'll get a shout on a future episode on the Hall of Fame. Just like Dennis Bevelu,
2: Ryan Schooler.
1: Stephen Quinn
2: and Cameron Armstrong, who
1: all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same, any amount, big or small, and it all goes back into the running of the show. And we massively appreciate it. And you'll find that link, cryptocurrency and PayPal, on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. I love it when long-lost games turn up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We've been hearing quite a few tales of these old games, and it's good to see them still getting released. Well, this is actually, when it was one of your favourite games back in the day, SimCity. Now, SimCity has got quite an interesting history. So I think it started around 1985, didn't it, the, the work on the game, but it wasn't released until a few years later. But it was originally a Commodore 64 game. Mm. That was a, the platform it was developed for. And it turns out that they're also working on a few other 8-bit versions as well, including a version in the 90s, quite interestingly, for the NES now, by 91, I mean, you know, people often associate the NES with, like, the 80s, but it was still a big platform until the Super Nintendo came around, and it turns out there actually, there was a version of SimCity that appeared as a demo at an electronic show in 91 for the NES that then never saw the light of day.
2: Yeah, and they're saying that this version of SimCity was very special because Will Wright, who is the creator of SimCity, yeah. he actually worked with uh, Shiguro Miyamoto, and kind of they worked together to port it. So this is the the top guy, you know, Mr. Mr. Mario with him.
1: Yeah, exactly. And apparently it turns out this game was really good and they're not sure why it never saw the light of day properly. I mean, I imagine because Super Nintendo came along shortly after that and they really wanted to, you know, promote the 16-bit version of it instead. But it turns out there was a couple of copies of the game and one of them was found at a used game shop in Seattle last year. Just randomly lying Just on the sitting shelf. There. Yeah. <laughs> but can you imagine walking into a shop and then, especially if you know what it is... It's like the Holy Grail kind yeah. of light shining <laughs> from above, you know? Is it really? at cool, at cool. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out a fan actually bought the game and now he's dumped the ROM so anyone who wants to play... SimCity on the NES can now do it.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
1: I I like that you're sharing it, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, the reckon this actually is a little bit different to the other 8-bit versions, and it contains a few features that, you know, would come along a bit later on other platforms. For example, like SimCity 2000. They reckon there's bank loans in here as well that help you uh, get over, you know, the stress of running out of money. Because SimCity,
2: the original one, like, a lot of people play 2000, and they kind of still call that SimCity, but SimCity, the original one, was really hard. Like proper tricky well
1: i imagine with um maybe with the nez having a younger audience maybe that's why they put a few things to help you out a bit more yeah, with yeah. in there. so it, it looks really good i mean I've not, I've not played it yet but i've watched a couple of youtube videos on it uh, but if you do want to get the rom to download if you've got an everdrive or something like that we'll put that in the show notes at the retrohour.com now it's not very often that we get to talk about a true pioneer um and sadly one who passed away over christmas and this is lawrence roberts now he was one of the Earliest internet pioneers, as he worked on the ARPANET, didn't he? He was actually program manager.
2: Yeah, and the ARPANET was kind of it was a precursor to the internet, yeah. wasn't it?
1: Ran at military installations and universities. There, yeah, there. yeah.
2: When we had um, with Captain Crunch, actually, he yeah. was he was telling us about the ARPANET and how he actually used to work at NORAD. Yeah, and they
1: were kind <laughs> of communicating <laughs> using that. So, I mean, this guy, I mean, you've got to got to understand just how important. ARPANET was, I mean, the modern internet today came out of that. And uh, he was 81 years old, he passed away the day after Christmas. And he, he doesn't really, I, I've heard his name before, but I don't think he quite gets the recognition that he deserves. Because he come up with so many interesting ideas as well. He was a guy that implemented packet switching technology, which today, I mean, you know, breaking data down into little bundles. Yeah, That is how, like, pretty much the internet works today, without having that kind of vision that, you know, this technology needs to be implemented. So many things today, even stuff like um, distributed computing and that kind of thing, all completely relies on packet switching technology. So he really was a visionary. And it is always sad when someone who had that level of influence and changed the world passes away. But um, what, what is good about it is, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about him and there's been obituaries and people are becoming more aware of what he did now and that important work.
2: Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about the creation of the Internet, Standard, just go to Tim Berners-Lee. But there's yeah. a lot of people that did a lot of things to basically bring all the elements together. You know, he did the World Wide Web. Tim did, but, yeah. but, but there was all the TCP,
1: IP, and all of this stuff before. You know? Yeah, the stuff that it's built on. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the, the foundations, foundations. They all yeah. have to be there. So rest in peace, Lawrence Roberts. Um, and like it says in this article on FOSBites that we'll link to in the show notes as well, it's got a really nice line at the end that his influence will be felt across the internet forever. So I thought that was a nice little summary there at the end.
2: That is really nice. You know, I went into a store when I was in America. Hmm. Uh, It was like one of these kind of tech stores, like our Maplins. Right. And they had all the founders of the internet, the inventors of, like, email and of the original system all around the store
1: what just printed on the wall in, yeah images oh, cool.
2: and they had a really fat steve jobs at the end <laughs> <laughs> you know in his fat period yeah that early 90s era yeah. yeah it's
1: weird when you see videos of that isn't it because he was also skinny the rest of the yeah. time yeah so yeah if you do want to find out more about uh, Lawrence roberts i'll put that in the show notes along with all the rest of this week's stories at the retrohour.com and also a little link to the place you might want to buy a gamecube controller hub for your nintendo switch yeah, so these are these are really cool. Um, they actually have them
2: for the Wii U.
1: Yeah.
2: Some models of the Wii have them on the back, so they actually have the GameCube. Yeah, the uh, earlier ones. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they have them now for the Switch, and these are really cool. You can basically plug in your original controllers... And I'm assuming this is going to be for games that you can download off the store. It'll be for the, Smash
1: Brothers. That's the it, reason it, everyone is, wants it. Is that it? Yeah. That, that's the reason everyone wants GameCube controllers on every other platform. Because the
2: reason Brothers. we've been using these on Wii U games is to play Donkey Konger. Right, <laughs> you know, with the congas because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you can absolutely, oh, of course, plug yeah, them plug in. in, yeah. Because right, there cool. was a
1: lot of accessories for the GameCube. Do you remember the maracas as well? Yeah, I remember the Dreamcast ones. I don't think I ever had them on the GameCube, but yeah, I've got the um, yeah the, the bongos for the congas, yeah, yeah. yeah things. Um, but again, I love the fact that they are releasing stuff like this to keep it authentic because I think you know I'm I'm not a massive Smash Brothers fan. Um, I have got it on the Wii U. I didn't buy it on the on the Switch, but. A lot of people say that is a way that you need to play this game. I guess, you know, it comes from when you were younger and that was the way that you learned it and it kind of feels intuitive, I guess. And playing with any other controller just doesn't feel right.
2: Yeah, and they're saying kind of this takes up the two full ports.
1: The USB ports. USB
2: ports, but you wouldn't be able to shove four adapters in there
1: anyway. So,
2: like, kind of takes up two ports, but for the four adapters.
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks a pretty simplistic device, a little black box. Um, with four ports on the front where you can plug your GameCube controllers in. And then, yeah, it goes into the back of the dock, doesn't it, where you've got the two um, full USB-A ports inside it. Um, and they're selling it for a pretty good price. It's only $14.99 from uh, Niko You can get them on Amazon as well. And if you just want a single-port one, apparently they're doing one for just one controller, and that's $10, so they're not, you know... Taking liberties with the price, like a lot of companies so, do. With so you director. could
2: even sit on the train and have your GameCube <laughs> controllers plugged
1: in and have a proper session. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did like the GameCube controller. I thought it was really good. And I know, like you said, I think it was Nintendo actually did an official adapter for the Wii U. It was them that did it. I think. Yeah. Um, that proves, you know, they they understood the the community need behind using these controllers. But, I mean, you know, kind of just talking about the Wii U there, have you noticed the prices of Wii U's been going up massively recently? Really? Yeah, there's one on... Um, I, think I, like, I box... should hold on to one. I've got two. Well, it's like box ones at the moment on, like, Amazon are going for, like, six, dollars $700 or something. They're, like, really? a ridiculous amount, yeah. Oh, my so gosh, I've, got a, I've got
2: a premium box Zelda edition
1: <laughs> that I might have to... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> R- Ravi was thinking he'd have to wait 10 years to get his money yeah. back on that, but, yeah. Apparently they're an in-demand system. I wonder if it is because, I mean, you know, outside the Virtual Boy and stuff like that, it was Nintendo's biggest flop, but it had a really good game library, and maybe a lot of people now are thinking, um, I want to try that. It's those also days. the emulation. You
2: know, uh, the fact that you can have wireless pads on there and you can play all of this stuff. Like, um, I had mine in the cupboard for a long time collecting dust, and then I saw Modern Vintage Gamers video on Wii U emulation, and I was like, oh, my God. So I went out and got everything running on it. You
1: know? It's dead easy to
2: mod, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah. yeah, and it just comes out really nice quality. Uh, and you've also got your little mini screen as well, so you can cheat and look. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do remember before at the I,
2: advantage.
1: <laughs> I, I did like that screen, but I remember trying to, um, in my old flat I lived in, trying to play Mario Kart out on the balcony with it. But if you got more than about, you know, six metres away from the Switch, you'd lose connection. <laughs> from yeah. the Wii U, rather, you'd have to stand right next to it. So, yeah, we, we, we've come on a bit since the Wii U, but, you know, good platform. You mentioned wireless Air as well. I'm wondering if the Wave Bird, you know, the wireless... GameCube controllers, mm. if they'd work with this um, Maybe. retro controller hub. So that'd be cool. Now, before we get into our guest, Tony Horgan, talking about CU Amiga magazine and uh, journalism back in the day, Golf in Doom. What is Hellshots Golf about then?
2: Well, we used to get a lot of Doom mods, even on the Amiga CDs, yeah. you know, like Chocolate Doom, Simpsons Doom. Oh, there's wads uh, everywhere, wasn't Do- there? Doom Chess, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. Well, this is a brand new game. And it's uh Doom Golf, would you believe it? And it looks pretty cool. They're saying there's this uh uh Xanderum, which is this kind of online uh way to play it now. So you can use this mod and you can use Zed Doom and uh G Z Doom, which I, I assume they're all different versions of Doom yeah. that have been kind of ported to different platforms. But it looks pretty cool. Um I think you hit a little hellball. as you're going along well
1: there's a little trailer of it here yeah it's essentially a full 18 hole golf course that's been implemented on the doom engine but what is cool about it is the guy here is actually playing golf he's smacking the ball around but then also the the monsters come along and he smashes them with the golf club to get to the next (laughs) bit so
2: but also you can do multiplayer so you can run around and graffiti each other or graffiti all on the floor whilst you're playing (laughs) The thing about,
1: you know, the, the Doom engine, even though it's over like 25 years old now, it still never ceases to amaze me how flexible it is and what people will do with it. No, it's still getting some love. Like, uh,
2: recently I saw that John Romero, he actually released 30 new levels for the original
1: yeah. Doom, yeah. which is like, wow, still still working on it, you know. I mean, uh, we had John Romero on him and he was so proud of that game, and rightly so as well. There's actually a couple of videos on YouTube didn't um, if you've seen this one? It's like um, they're inside id software when Doom's in development, and the kind of you see them testing it and everything. Romero's there at like two, three in the morning, like just playing it over and over to make sure it works and everything. It's really interesting. If I can find that, I'll, I'll show them in the show notes as well. So if you want to download uh, golf in Doom, Hellshots Golf is out now. Right then, well that's all the news we've got for this week. If you are coming to Ireland next weekend, we will see you there. And right now, time for our special guest. Tony Horgan with the inside story of CU Amiga magazine. Listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and it's time to say hello to this week's special guest. You know, it's a couple of guys who grew up religiously reading CU Amiga magazine. It is our pleasure to welcome to the show the former editor of CU Amiga, Tony Horgan.
0: Hello and uh, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be asked, really.
1: Now, before we kind of get into the uh, the backstory of what was involved when working on CU, I mean, just kind of going into your history a little bit. Where did your personal interest in computers begin?
0: I guess I just always had a bit of a fascination with video games to begin with. And then realising that video games were kind of driven by computers got me into computers, really. So from the time that I was tall enough to stand on a box and see the, the screen of a, a Pong machine or a Space Invaders or something like that, or Breakout. I suppose Breakout was probably the earliest one I remember. From about that age, I always was quite fascinated by video games, arcade machines mostly, as they were at the time.
2: Um, what was your first machine
0: then? The first computer was, I've, I'm one of four brothers, and one of my brothers, the one just up from me, had um, he got a ZX81 in 1981 and um i remember him saying so that was our first computer at home and i remember him saying to me oh um i've asked dad for a computer and he said he's going to get one for me for christmas or for my birthday whatever it was and i i imagined this thing like uh you know with with spinning tape loops and reels and um <laughs> something like a commodore pet stuck on the end of it you know And I said, you know, and I was explaining that, saying, you know, it'd be quite big, won't it? How are we going to get that in the house? And then he said, you know, that thing you see in WH Smith, the little black thing that looks like a a calculator without a screen. (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) And I said, oh, that's rubbish. But then um, he was quite, he was a bit smarter than me. So um, he read a book and then taught himself how to use it and how to program it. Um, And then he taught me how to program it so that's really when the the kind of interesting computers opened up because i realized that you could um you could make your own games really
1: and then did you get your own machine shortly after that
0: well because we were we were four brothers and believe it or not we all we all shared the same bedroom <laughs> and we all did from day one so Um, it was just kind of natural for us to share everything. Anything that wasn't, you know, a pair of shoes. (laughs) Anything that was a a big thing in the house was always shared. So even though it was my brother Michael's computer, kind of, we all took ownership of it. So then by the time, well, then we moved on to a Spectrum. And then by the time we managed to upgrade to a Commodore 64, I think I'd kind of... Taken ownership of the of the household computers by then, so I would say that was probably my first one, the Commodore 64, which we got we got one Christmas, and it was one of the games we had was Robin of the Wood. So whatever year Robin of the Wood came out, it was that Christmas.
1: And what kind of stuff were you doing on the 64? Then was it mainly gaming, or were you doing? Because I know that the 64 had a really good music chip, and I know you're quite into computer music, aren't you? Were you doing any like stuff on that? Yeah
0: yeah um on the well on the so on the spectrum and the zX81, I was mostly making little things like um, kind of space invader type things or really basic track and field kind of games where you just redefine some ASCII characters into into little graphics and then move them around with really basic kind of x equal x plus one kind of formulas. Um, but on the Commodore 64, the basic that came with it wasn't really very good for that kind of thing. So there was, there was something called Laser Basic, which was a kind of um, extended basic that had lots of different routines. And it allowed you to do a lot more than you could just with the, the basic Commodore Basic. And accessing the sound chip was a lot easier. So that was when I first started really getting into music on computers, really. I'd done a few things on the spectrum because you could do, I had a Casio VL1. Which I don't know if you remember is the tiny little um black and white synthesizer yes. keyboard yeah, thing. Yeah. And on the spectrum I used to do I used to work out a tune on the Catio and then trans translate that in basic into beeps. So you could you could all you could do on the spectrum in basic anyway was to specify the pitch and the length of a beep and that was it. But on the so I'd started to do that, but then on the Commodore 64 there was so much more that you could do. You could use um, three different sound channels at once and you could do different things with the sound as it played, which was, for me, that was the real attraction because you could change the sound. So you didn't just have a fixed sort of tone that went... You know, you could change the pulse width so it could go... or something like that.
1: (laughs) Very versatile SID though, wasn't it?
0: It was. The the SID... The SID chip was great. Before we got the Commodore 64, a friend of mine who also had a Spectrum did a swap for a few days with his friend, and he swapped his Spectrum for his friend's Commodore 64. And I went down to his house, and that was the first time I saw Commodore 64 and heard it as well. And I think the game was hoverbother. and the music for that just blew me away. And I don't think it's even very good music, but... It was doing those kinds of things, those sort of synthesizery type sounds, and it was coming through a big TV, and it just it sounded sounded amazing. I didn't think a home computer could sound like that, and I thought, wow, well, yeah, I definitely want a Commodore 64 now.
2: Well, talking of sound, the Amiga had a wicked sound. And when did you first see one, and kind of what did you think of it?
0: Well, the, f- the first time I saw an Amiga was my first day in my first proper job. Or a magazine um, because you didn't really see them in shops at the time. It was an Amiga One Thousand. So I I started at um, Commodore Computing International in nineteen eighty seven, and they had a they had a Commodore um, they had an Amiga One Thousand sitting on the desk when I went in like on my first day, and it just had a screen on it. A blank screen when I turned it on and the disc and it said Kickstart and because you had to load Kickstart from a floppy disk yeah. on the original one thousand. So it wasn't even workbench, you had to do Kickstart first. Um at the time, one of my favourite games was Kickstart, the Mastertronic game that we you know from the Commodore sixty four. The Spectre biking game. And I thought, wow, they've got an amiga version of Kickstart. wow <laughs> But when I got in there, no one, of course, that wasn't what it was. It was part of the operating system that it was waiting for you to load. But um, no one really in the office knew how to use it. So um, it was kind of up to me to figure that out. So that was good fun as well.
1: Well, how did you get started in journalism then? I mean, were you just kind of freelancing and sending stuff in at first then before you got yeah,
0: to Yeah. Well, when I was at school, I, I wasn't really a big fan of school um, in the, my teenage years. So... I decided that I'd been reading magazines, computer magazines since the early 80s. So computer and video games and all of the other kind of rubbishy ones that were around at the time, Popular, Computing Weekly. I'm sure that was great if anyone from there is listening. But, you know, um, all of the magazines. And I thought, you know, what, I could, I could do that. That's easy. I could do it better than they're doing it. So I thought, um, what do I need to do Mm learned to type. So I took typing lessons at school and I chose computer studies, which was a waste of time. Well, it wasn't really a waste of time because it showed that I knew about computers, but I didn't learn anything from it because I knew more, more than the teacher, really. So and then English and maths and then flunked a few others. And then um, so while I, while I was still at school, I was sending off letters to magazine editors and sending in reviews. And uh, saying, you know, give me a job. Um, I'll be leaving school soon and um, I'm good at this kind of stuff. Um, And then I thought, if I just keep this up, eventually someone will crack. Someone will leave and then my letter will arrive on the right person's desk at the right time. Just by, you know, the law of averages. Um, So that happened. So that's when I got a job on Commodore Computing International, which was i started that job the day before my 17th birthday but i didn't tell anyone in the office because i was too shy i didn't want everyone to know it was my <laughs> birthday the next day
1: <laughs> well i mean you know you mentioned that you had a commodore 64 and i see cu amiga was originally commodore user magazine wasn't it i mean was that one yeah. that you used to read or did you ever write for that at that stage
0: um i did used to read it i used to read all of them when i was at Commodore Computing International, that was just around the corner from EMAP, which published Commodore User and CU Amiga. EMAP also, EMAP was the, EMAP had lots of different divisions that would publish different types of magazines and all of their computer and computer games magazines were in one building in London, in EC1. And my office, the Commodore Computing International office was just around the corner. So even though I wanted to work EMAP, I was just around the corner, so every day I I would get off the train and walk past EMAP and look up longingly and think, oh, I'll work there one day. And then (laughs) going to to work at Commodore Computing International and say, right, this magazine's rubbish, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do that. But it was quite hard work because there was only me, I was the only young person there in the office, really. Um, No one else really understood games at all.
1: Well I mean when it did turn into CU Amiga how did you end up working there then and how did you get the job?
0: So I was at Commodore Computing International I think for about four years something like that and um, Amiga User International came out of a magazine called Commodore Business and Amiga User which was the first Amiga magazine in the UK and then Amiga User International kind of was formed out of that so a lot of the content that I was doing for Commodore Computing International was duplicated and used again in Amiga User International. So I was working on both of those for about four years, and then there was a a bit of a falling out. There was a there was a misunderstanding with a a holiday that I booked, and it, we came to an impasse. And I had to go on this holiday because I was the the designated driver for a European tour in a camper van with me and a couple of mates. And it turned out that the editor thought. He didn't think I was going on this holiday. He thought I was going to go and cover the PCW show at Earl's Court, which was in August or early September. And um, I said, well, no, I can't let my friends down. Um, And he said, well, then you won't have a job to come back to. No way. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd um, I'd met a few people along the way. So I knew some people by then at EMAP. Um... Nick Feach and uh, John Kennedy, who were working at Emap in various guises on CU Amiga, at the time. So they gave me a bit of freelance, and then um, then I got a staff writer job on CU Amiga, kind of off the back of that. Really, they had a. It was at a time when there was a big expansion in everything Amiga. You know, that was when I guess what was that, 91 or 92, sometime around that time when it was really at its peak and CU amiga was a big magazine and it needed more staff and they hired three staff writers all in one go so um and i was one of those i remember i was quite arrogant when i was at the interview because i'd been reviewing games for about four years on these other magazines and i kind of got fed up with it and i wanted to do other things like music and graphics and video and i said okay in the interview, I said to them, OK, I will take the job. They hadn't offered it to me, but I said "I will take the job, but I'm not going to review any games because I've had enough of it. And then I walked out and I thought, you idiot, what did you say that for? you never get the job. <laughs> and then they offered me the job.
2: Well, you did a lot of musical articles in the Amiga magazines. Did you find the Amiga was good machine for kind of musical production and stuff?
0: It was great. Um, you know, if you... in. In history people will always say the Atari ST was great for music but as we know that's because it had the the MIDI ports and then MIDI software was written for it purely because of that Um, for me I did have an Atari ST at the same time Um, but for me the Amiga was always my favorite machine for music because it was so immediate you had those four channels of 8-bit samples and you didn't have much memory to play with but if you knew how to prepare your samples and you knew how to work a tracker or med or octomed in my case was my preference you could get some really good sounds from it and it was really immediate if you were using a tracker it was like it was like an instrument in itself so as soon as you hit a key that sound played you could play the keyboard like a musical keyboard you could it was really quick to to get beats and and rhythms and, and melodies going so that's what i loved about it and there was no latency or anything like that like you get these days because the sound chip was all integrated you know with the operating system and so you could do whatever you wanted with the sound chip and it wasn't having to go through drivers or anything like that so it was really responsive and quick and yet sometimes the sound quality wasn't Rate, but you could work with that, and you know, people did release records with it. I released one with it as well, actually.
1: Yeah, I think didn't you write about that in CU? I do remember vaguely
0: reading about that. I did. It yeah. was um, it was just after CU Amiga closed. Yeah. So it was mm, that CU Amiga closed towards the end of nineteen ninety eight, and then I got a few quid when I got laid off from CU Amiga. So obviously, I bought some synthesizers with it. And um, and then I thought, well, what I need to do is uh, is release a record because I've been talking about it for years. So um, because I didn't actually have a job, that's what I did. I just bought lots of music gear and made a record. And then I talked Nick Veach or it might even have been Ben at the time into uh, Ben Voss. That is into running it as a as a cover feature on Amiga format, which was nice. So. I kind of documented everything that I'd done, and then um, yeah, just wrote that up as as a feature for Amiga Format, and it was really nice actually because we had a, a strong rivalry with Amiga Format, but we were always good friends, and it was nice to be welcomed into Amiga Format um, when when CU Amiga closed.
1: Well, no, around that time in you know the mid 90s, obviously clubbing and dance music was massive then, and even artists like um, Aphrodite and Colcott I remember reading about those yeah. in like see Amiga that you know they used to use Amiga for their their productions too. And I think Ravi found out recently that was it. Kanye West actually got his start on the Amiga. Yeah, yeah, and Calvin <laughs> yeah, Harris that, I as heard well.
0: Heard
1: that one. Yeah, Calvin Harris wow. too. So and um,
0: Calvin Harris as well.
1: Yeah, I think his first album was actually written still using an Amiga 1200. Yeah, 500, I think actually yeah. for the yeah tracker. Would
0: be. I'll, I'll look into that. Yeah, um, it was it was nice in those times to go and meet and chat to, to people like um Aphrodite um from Urban Shakedown and um, you know see how he was working and Matt Black from Cold Cut. He was always he always had plenty of time. I remember he was I went round to his house once to do an interview and he was rendering something in Imagine and it was in those days where you could literally see the see it rendering on screen pixel by pixel going across in scan lines. And it almost reached, it was just one frame. It almost reached the bottom of the screen. Um, but then it was time for us to do something else. And and he just said, oh, you know, I'll cancel that. Don't worry, we'll do something else. And, I, you know, anyone else would have been like, don't touch it, don't touch <laughs> it. You know, but he always had plenty of time. they
1: would probably so been to on to for about three effect. days yeah. rendering or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Yeah, Dex and Jonesy. I don't yeah, know if you've ever heard. I do
1: remember that. them.
0: Because they did... Uh, they did a remix of Higher State of Consciousness by Josh Wink, which was, um, that was a great track. I remember meeting Josh Wink at a, a really good club in London when that was massive and chewing his ear off after a, a night in the club. But um, yeah, Dex and Jonesy were good fun as well. They were working in the same kind of way as Aphrodite, Um urban shakedown using two Amiga 1200s so you would have eight channels so rather than using OptiMed to have more channels on one Amiga because the sound quality wasn't good they were just kind of syncing two Amigas and Dex and Janji like Aphrodite were DJs really by trade so that's second nature just to synchronize two computers just by ear.
2: Did you ever release any kind of productions onto the demo scene?
0: I did um they weren't great. I did. When was it? It must have been around about that time between CU Amiga. No, between Amiga User International and CU Amiga. I, I was freelance for about a year or so before I started on CU Amiga. And I did a few kind of remixes of pop rave stuff. So. um it was before I'd managed to really get into the rave scene properly and realise what amazing music there was out there. So it was, you know, there was a lot of kind of cheesy sort of pop rave stuff like Charlie and there was another one called The Bouncer. No. So I would do some remixes of stuff and also a few uh, a few original kind of tracks. And then it was mostly just that with a picture that I'd stuck on the screen. But then we did do something with um urban shakedown using a, a thing called video tracker later on i think that was 1994 or 95 um that was cool because video tracker allowed you to synchronize real kind of high quality demo effects with a an Optimed module so everything could be really tightly edited and uh and changed with all of the beats that's on it's on youtube somewhere
1: that's one thing I remember about CU as well. I mean, you know, we'll get into the, the CD-ROMs in, in just a bit, but I always remember when there'd be, like, big Amiga parties, you'd often have all of the, the submissions and entries at the parties would all be on your CD. So, I mean, you know, you did actually give the demo scene quite a lot of love, didn't you, in CU?
0: Yeah, I loved it. It was one of those things that no one really understood um, in terms of people in the office. Um, when it, Sometimes you get that, people that are working within broader industry so publishing in this case don't quite often don't understand some of the the finer aspects of the the subject that their magazine is covering and the demo scene was one of those things when on from when i was working at commodore computing international absolutely no one got that at all um and i didn't really manage to get much through those pages but once we got to see Amiga. I did because it was people could see that there was um something was happening there with public domain libraries and and there were adverts from public domain libraries so even though people in the office didn't get it they were happy for me to do that but I loved all of those things I loved I loved them on two levels one just on the aesthetic level so watching a, a tunnel effect just staring into a tunnel that's flying at you or you know watching a thousand sprites spinning around in a spiral or something like that but also the the technical level which was just as much a part of it showing what you can do that you can have a thousand sprites or bobs on the screen or that you, you can do things in the border or you can whatever you know whatever you can technically you can push the boundaries a lot and that was that was always interesting for me um, especially because then it was a level playing field. So everyone was working with the same platform, you know, say it was an Amiga 500 or an Amiga 1200. There were limits that everyone had, which was the hardware, but everyone was pushing each other to get more out of that particular piece of hardware.
1: Well, you mentioned when you were a staff writer initially, um, you didn't want to cover games. I mean, what kind of articles were you writing?
0: Well, I kind of, I got the job partly off the back of a regular music column, But then there was other stuff like um, video stuff was quite interesting to me. If ever I saw an advert for a Genlock or heard that someone had a new Genlock, then I was always on the phone to them and um, harassing the editor. We've got to get a review of this Genlock in because a Genlock was something that allowed you to overlay graphics that you'd created on your Amiga onto live video or onto video that you were feeding in from a tape so you could do instead of just overlaying it so the amiga could output its graphics with an alpha channel if you like for the background so you could do things like everyone would always demonstrate these things with um a, a kind of a weather forecast thing where you're standing in front of Your live video and you're you're standing in front of something you created on the Amiga, um, which is the weather map. But you could do it in different ways. So you could color key stuff. You could do blue screen, green screen. And um, so, for example, you could get a camcorder and you could hold it up to the sky on um, on a sunny day. And you could replace all the blue sky with some completely psychedelic color cycling thing that you just come up with in deluxe paint. And you might ask, why would you do that? I'm not sure, but it was good fun. <laughs> so, uh, I love to do all that kind of stuff, experimenting with what you could do in terms of audio and video and and visuals.
2: Well, in 1996, um, you took over as editor from Alan Dykes. How did you get yeah. that role?
0: Well, it was it was almost by default because I could have... I could have gone for the editor's role a long time before that. Um, after Dan Slingsby went to to go to Future, to, he went to um, edit PC format, I think. Um, I could have gone for the job then, but I didn't really want it because the trouble is when you're the editor, you don't get to do so many of the fun things like messing around with a, a gen lock or going in the back room. And making music and watching demos and writing stupid things, um, so I didn't really want to be the editor because I wanted just to have more fun. But then, by the by, the time Alan Dykes left, there wasn't really anyone else on the there wasn't anyone else on the team that was an obvious choice for the position, and there wasn't an obvious choice from. Anywhere outside of the magazine because it was on its way down you know in terms of circulation by that point i don't know well it was selling maybe thirty thousand something like that, thirty thousand a month you know at its height it was selling over a hundred thousand copies a month yeah um thirty thousand a month is not really going to attract many good people, and I didn't want someone else to come in at that point and not understand the magazine and I thought okay it's time now I need to step up and um take the magazine where I want it to go and also because I hadn't really felt that in the the few years previously the magazine had been very well focused and I even though I didn't want the editor's job I did always think that "Mm, well I would do this differently and, and that differently so I thought well it's time to actually do it now.
1: Well, you know, say we're there in 96 and you've took over as editor and you're working on CEO Amiga and EMAP's offices. What was kind of a typical day for you like then? I mean, was it long days? What what, what kind of happened?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was long days. Um, For me, it was quite a long journey up there. So it always started with a struggle to get in on time and being, I suppose, an old teenager. (laughs) I always felt like an old teenager. I probably wasn't getting out of bed early enough. But it was a it was a long journey up there. So I'd normally get in late and be berated for being in late. It'd be nearer to 10 o'clock than half nine when I was supposed to be in. And then, but so would most other people. And then um, we shared, we moved around the building a bit, but we would typically share one floor. The building we were in had about five floors and other magazines there were Magazines like Mean Machines and CVG, as it was known then, Computer and Video Games, um, and the official Nintendo magazine. So we would typically share a floor with one of those magazines. And they were normally going nuts about something, um, which was fine and good fun. And then we were kind of like supposed to be the sensible ones. Well, we were trying to sort of be the sensible ones anyway. So on the team, there was normally two designers there's the editor, uh, one or two staff writers, deputy editor or production editor and uh, technical editor, something like that. And it was a bigger team earlier on. And then the team got smaller in the later years as there wasn't so much budget there. And then, as happens in most magazines, the first two months of the schedule were normally really slack. And then the... Next two weeks, everyone would go, oh, uh, we've got a magazine to finish, haven't we? Quick. (laughs) And then so everyone would start to panic. And then in the last week, which is known as press week, the the week before the magazine is sent to the printing presses, that's when everything, when you have really long late nights, when everything had to get done because it hadn't been done. The three weeks before and then someone would send out for Chinese and and then I think oh no don't send out for Chinese that means we're going to be here for another three hours
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that deadline's on the hill you can see it coming
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so there was one thing that was one thing I wanted to change as uh as I became editor and it's not that easy because there's only so much you can do to to change that and and it is a culture within magazines. I think even now that's how it still is.
2: What did that era feel like then kind of post Commodore with uh, the whole Escom saga going on? Was it really stressful?
0: Um, It wasn't really, it wasn't that stressful. I think, I, I don't know. I suppose it was at times. It was probably more stressful in some ways when, The whole thing was really big and you had lots of the suits from the company walking around demanding this, that and the other people that didn't really understand the market. And, um, you know, when the magazine was pulling in a a lot of money in the, the early 90s, sometimes then it was quite stressful because all the bosses wanted a piece of it and were demanding this and that. By the time we'd got to the the late 90s, we were kind of left to do our own thing so long as we... So um, as long as we made money and um, so there's a lot of things that we had to do in order to make money, you know, make the magazine great, which is difficult to do, but not necessarily that stressful if you're left alone to do it and if you know what to do. And then in terms of the how how it was with like the, the position of Commodore and, and SCOM and Gateway and all of that. For a long time, it seemed to me before I took over as editor, there was a lot of um, there was a lack of honesty from the Amiga press, at least in C U Amiga, where they people didn't want to say, look, yeah, Amiga's gone bust, Commodore's gone bust, um, it's uh, it's lagging way behind all of these other formats in terms of games and um, multimedia and, and everything else. But let's um, let's enjoy it. And let's make the most of it. It was there was a lot of talk of, um, oh, no, the Amiga's still this. It's still that. It's going to Samsung's going to buy it. Someone else is going to buy it. It's going to be amazing. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Um, so when I took over, I wanted to just be a bit more honest. You know, I wasn't talking it down, but thought, well, you know, this is what we've got. Let's make the most of it. Show people how they can use their Amigas how they can enjoy them, how they can get the most value out of them, learn as much as they can about them and and have fun with them and not try to sort of blind people with their... or not try to sort of kid people that it's all fine as a format because it clearly wasn't.
1: Well, I mean, see Omega and Omega Format as well. You know, they're, they're quite unique in terms of every month you give away, um, you know, really what was like maybe a year before, really high-priced commercial software. And... It, it seemed to me in a way, I mean, first of all, I was quite curious how you kind of made those deals to get the software for the cover discs. But also, in your opinion, do you think that harmed Amiga software sales?
0: Um, it, it might have done. It's, it's hard to say if it harmed sales or not really. Um, it's, it's particularly hard for me to say because, uh, you know, I wasn't working in a, a software sales area. So I didn't, you know, I couldn't actually look at any figures. But I think it, ultimately I think it was fine, and it helped the the developers of the software involved. The way it worked was we would have uh, a budget every month to produce the magazine, and part of that budget was something for the cover disc for the CD and the, and any floppies that we had. However, you know, long we kept the floppies going and that. So we had generally uh, the budget was. Generally, somewhere around about five grand. Um, sometimes could be pushed, could be pushed above that, and was I think for a few things to to buy um, a license for a piece of software. So let's say it was um, Imagine, for example. If we if we decided we wanted Imagine on the cover, I would make that decision, or we would make that decision collectively, and then I would approach. Um, or maybe uh, Matt would do this, Matt Bettsen. Sometimes, in later years, whoever was in charge, but would approach the company and say, "This is the uh, this is the figure we can offer you for for this software. We'll put it on the CD, and we will also run. Um, we would normally have a slightly older version of the software rather than the, the latest version. So we would give people the, the maybe the the previous iteration of the Software and then we would, as part of the deal, we would have adverts and incentives for readers to upgrade to the latest edition. So that was part of the deal, and then and a one-off payment to the to the developer or the publisher of the of the software. The feedback I got from some of the developers was that they were disappointed that not many people really took up the offer of, of upgrading, so they didn't really make anything beyond that initial lump sum that we paid them um, but then for others it was fine so for octamed for example um, that was a nice a nice little learner really for them um, but for some of the bigger publishers they were a bit disappointed with the returns they got
2: well those uh, cu super cds kind of became essential because a lot of people weren't connected to the internet back then, so it was a good way to get lots of software but also, I must say, they were much better than Amiga formats. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Um, well, Im-
0: yeah, we were. I'm sure um, Amiga format, you know, would have wanted to have that budget for their own. Because we, in the later days, we had that bigger budget for our CDs, and it was a, a, a conscious, strategic decision to do that. Um, whereas, um, the, you know, the decision had been made uh, future. Uh, as I understand it, you know, not to put that much budget into the CD to buy things. And I thought we are selling a magazine, but we do need to try hard to actually give readers an incentive. So, uh, so that was, that was kind of the difference. Uh, And it did make a big difference having that on there. Definitely.
2: Was it a kind of massive job to compile it and get everything together every month?
0: Um, I think it got a bigger job over time um matt Bettinson probably will remember this better than me because uh he was a bit more involved in in that kind of stuff towards the end um people's expectations were raised as time went on so um there was a lot of stuff to go on there um it was always nice to put lots of different things on there but yeah it was quite a big job because there was Aminet was there which was great as a resource but still things need to be collected and collated and and also there's a lot of um, checking that needs to be done as well because it's you can't just assume that everything on Aminet is fine to publish in the UK or anywhere else that the magazine is sold it could have all kinds of dodgy content so there's a lot of checking involved there and sometimes I can't remember specifically but I'm sure we did get into hot water on one or two occasions where something had gone on the CD that wasn't... It was slightly unsavoury, but we didn't realise it was on there.
2: Yeah, I think there was some some kind of manga um, <laughs> images at one
0: point. Maybe that was it, yeah. So it was, it was quite a big job. Um, it was kind of tempting just to throw it on there, to go, here's your big you know, um easy big kind of headline software and then throw loads of stuff from Aminet on there. But we knew there was that danger, so there was it was quite a big job and a, a responsible job to do that.
1: I remember Matt would do like um I guess it was kind of like an early style of blog, wouldn't it? he did like a little Matt dot readme file he'd hide in there kind of talking about how he made the C D and the problems he had that month. That was always fascinating to look at. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Matt was Matt was fun. He was a, a real character. He was a, a very good find for us at the time because a lot of the a lot it was very hard to recruit people for the magazine at the time in those uh you know from kind of 96 onwards because people it wasn't really a magazine that most people that could work on a magazine wanted to work on so um yeah we were lucky to find Matt because he was he was great
2: but the internet was becoming massive around that time um did you see it as kind of an extra platform or was it a kind of threat to the magazine
0: well no i never saw it as a threat it was it was always talked about as a threat to the magazine within the within the office especially with kind of beyond the the core writers on the magazine people that didn't understand it quite so much on the publishing side kind of saw it as a threat um but it was, you know, you can't you can't turn back the tide. It was there. So I thought, well, you know, like in the same way that I didn't want to tell everyone that Amiga will rise from the ashes and it'll all be fine. Um, I didn't want to say to people, oh, don't go on the Internet. Read us instead, you know. So instead we, we would say, um, you know, this is how you can get on the Internet. And you can, if you do want to. Use the internet. You can use your Amiga. So it was a reason to, another reason for people to buy the magazine and use their Amigas was to get onto the internet. So it really, it was a, a positive thing. I remember at one point we did have a, a regular page where we would just the internet was so young in terms of uh, our readership, Amiga users that we had a page where we, we would just pick random web pages and say, here's a web page about this here's a web page about that which seems ridiculous now but that's how young the web was at that time
1: i mean before we started recording this morning um ravi and i just noticed that the CU amiga website is actually still live um hasn't is been it? updated for for 21 years but yeah dot hyphen amiga.co.uk i wow. don't know who's who's still paying for that i've got no idea
0: I've got, no i've got no idea is it is there anything on there
1: yeah, there's still. It looks the same as it did in 1998. There's a notice from you on the front saying that the magazine's closing, and that was the last update on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Headline news.
1: <laughs> I mean, are there any like memorable issues that you worked on? Um, you know, from that time that kind of really stick in your mind, whether it was for the content or like you know the process of making them.
0: Well, one what I liked about that that time, the last year or so, was the way that we managed to find a, a formula for the magazine where we would we would come up with a good concept for each issue. This issue is going to be about this, but it will also have something for everyone and ideally something for everyone on the cover, but it will have a a theme. And it was good fun kind of trying to come up with covers that would illustrate the concepts that we were doing. And that was quite a challenge, you know, a concept like programming or... um, there was the, so there was one, there was what we call the bombshell issue where um, it was SCOM, wasn't it, at the time. Um, SCOM had said that, um, OK, we, uh, we bought Commodore or whatever, wherever they were in the process, we bought Amiga. And um, we've got this big announcement coming up. We're going to drop the bombshell and it's going to be on this date. And this date was after the, the date that the magazine was due to be printed. So we, all we could do really was take them at their word that they were going to drop this big bombshell announcement. Um, But we had no idea what it was. And the only way we could cover it, we knew would be with a kind of an insert, like an A4 or maybe folded A4 piece of paper inserted in the magazine after it had been printed, before it went to the shops with whatever this bombshell thing was. So... We, we rendered up uh, a cover, which was really basic. One of the designers just rendered uh, a bomb. I think they got a, a bomb model off AmiNet or something. And then we just overlaid it on an aerial photograph of London or something. And probably not very sensitive with all of the <laughs> countries involved at the time. But <laughs> anyway, um, we live in the. And no one complained about it anyway. And then so and then we had the cover line Amiga drops the bombshell and we had no idea what it was. And then after the magazine had gone to print, um, this, you know, in quotes, bombshell turned out to be absolutely nothing. I can't even remember what it was. But we we had to kind of follow it up with this, this little pamphlet that we put into the magazine to say what this thing was that Eskom had announced. They're going to do this, that and the other. And, and it's all going to be great. And that was uh, that was interesting. Around about that time, I remember being at the World of Amiga show in Hammersmith at the Novotel in Hammersmith. I think it was. And Escom invited us to this little room for a private viewing of their new Amiga. And because it was a public show, really. But they, you know, just like one of those shows where you come along to the booth and see the magazine and all the software developers and stuff. Yeah. And there was his private room, and um, and myself and a, a few others were invited to see this new Amiga, and it was it was just a cardboard box, and it had like uh, I think it had a, a CD drive in it, a real CD drive, but the rest of it was just made of white cardboard and had stickers on it, and they were expecting us to get excited about a cardboard box. This is the <laughs> new Amiga, really. It got a bit absurd after a while, so many false dawns and false promises. So I tried not to concentrate too much on what might or might not happen, just get on with what's happening now, what you can do now, um, and yeah, how to enjoy your Amiga and have fun with it, really.
1: I mean, when we got towards like, um, you know, late 96, early 97. I I remember then a lot of the other magazines started falling by the wayside, like Amiga User International, Amiga Shopper, Amiga Computing. All seemed to close within like that six-month period. Was it starting to get difficult around that time?
0: Yeah, it was because there's uh, with any magazine there's uh, at least at that time in the UK there was a a certain sales figure really that you had to achieve to for a magazine to be profitable. So. A really good magazine, a uh, good specialist magazine uh, at its peak might sell in, in the 90s, might sell 100,000 copies a month, which is a great figure. And that will make a lot of money as long as everything's balanced up properly in terms of budgets and advertising. Um, you can go down to about 30,000 and with a small team and low budgets, you can tick over. Okay but once you start getting below 30 towards 20,000 sales a month or less than that then it's the cost of um printing the magazine and and the staff costs and any other costs that are involved in creating the magazine outweigh what you're actually going to get back from sales of the magazine so all of the magazines around that time we're coming down to that kind of figure sort of below, below 30, below 20,000. Um, and that's when it kind of magazines get closed, kind of, it, it depends on various factors. Um, quite often it depends on who's in charge in terms of the, the, the publishing boss and the company and how the magazine is run and what else is going on within the company. So, um, we ended up closing before Amiga Format, and I think part of the reason for that was because we we had this decision, me and the the publisher, um, Andy McVitie, being the, in the position of the publisher rather than the publishing company. Andy was really good, and he understood the magazine, and we had this agreement that we will publish it, and we will have this budget so we can publish it well and to these standards, and when that becomes um, unviable and the sales can't support that that's when uh, that's when we'll close it so that's kind of that's what happened to see you really
1: well that last issue I remember you had that amazing Monty Python esque cover with the the big foot coming down and it was upside down as well I mean did you want to make yeah. that like a special issue
0: yeah we did uh, Andy was uh, my publisher was uh, always very honest and I said to him give me a bit of warning Um, if you can, I would really appreciate that. And then we can close the magazine properly because normally the way it works with magazines is if a magazine is closed, then the decision is made by the suits upstairs and the editorial team know nothing about it at all until it happens. So one day you turn up for work and then you're all called into a meeting that morning and then you're told, um, don't bother finishing the issue you're working on the magazine is closed and you're halfway through doing an issue and they just say, um, you know, get your coat and um, HR will give you a call to sort things out later in the week. And then that's it. It's like, wow, is that, is that how it happens? Yeah. So that's normally how it would happen with magazines. And I said to Andy McVitie, please don't do that. Let's, I know it's going to happen, but we can, if we know it's going to happen, we can, make it work and make, you know, make a high quality magazine all the way to the end. Otherwise, um, I'm going to leave or Matt's going to leave or uh, Andrew Corn's going to leave or Richard Drummond's going to leave or whoever, you know, we're all just kind of going to go our own way and then it will just fall apart and then it will be quite a a sad and sorry end to something that we've all put so much time and and love into. So, um, yeah, so instead of being told one day, that's it, get your coat, you're off. Um, we were told, okay, this is going to be the last issue, so finish this and make it a good one.
2: Well, I kind of noticed a, another small new magazine pop-up afterwards, which was called Amiga Active, and uh, it seemed to have a lot of former CU team members. What's the story behind that?
0: Yeah, um, that's right. I don't really know much about the story behind that, to be honest. Um, Andrew Corn was involved in that, wasn't he? Um to be honest, I don't really know. Um, I think I was too focused on um, making music and uh, and doing some bits for Amiga format. I guess I could also see that it probably wasn't going to have much of a future. To be honest, it sounds harsh, but um, that's probably why I didn't pay too much attention to it, I guess.
1: Well, I mean, do you still keep an eye on any Amiga developments these days or have any interest in what's going on with it?
0: Well, if... I would if someone could tell me what I can do with an Amiga now that I want or need to do that I couldn't do with something else or that I could do better with something else. So sometimes I do think when I'm making music, um, uh, I would like an Amiga 1200 just here and I can bring up some samples and, and I have seriously considered bringing one back into my music setup at the moment. But Aside from that, I haven't seen any reason to use one, but I'm, you know, I'm here to be uh, convinced otherwise.
1: Well, What are you doing these days, Antonio? What's kind of your day-to-day role these days?
0: Mostly music. Um, so I used to work... The last few years I was working on Stuff magazine, which was... Uh, that was great fun because it was like so many different gadgets every day. I was, being reviews editor on Stuff magazine is just... It's probably the best job there is in in magazines, I think. Um, but um, Stuff Magazine had to shrink down, as a lot of other magazines have done. And um, so I'm self-publishing things now. So I'm self-publishing books about how to make music with synthesizers. And I'm working on a a video course for Udemy. I think that's how you pronounce it. I've never heard anyone in the real world say you to me but you do you know what i mean the, yeah, uh, yeah the online yeah. video thing which is going to be about synthesizers and showing people if you turn this knob it makes this sound and this is connected to that so when you do that wow, wow then this happens and things like that so i'm working on that uh what else am i doing yeah mostly stuff like that mostly having fun with music um oh i released a a single last year which is on Bandcamp, you can check out called everything sounds like something because whenever i make a piece of music and i play it to someone they always say oh it sounds like this so i thought i'd call this one everything sounds like something <laughs>
1: Well, Tony, it's cool that you're still, you know, helping people get the most out of their equipment, whatever it may be, synthesizers, computers. Um, it's been amazing talking to you. I mean, like I said, Ravi and I, you know, we, we grew up reading Amiga Format religiously and CU Amiga and all these magazines back then. So uh, it's great to get your stories on, working on those classic titles.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's been been great to talk to you and it's been really good to discover your podcast. In, in fact, um, it's just this chat has inspired me to... To write a book about those years the commodore years and, and my experiences so um thank you for that yeah that's something else I'm, I'm working on at the moment so that will come out uh i don't know when it will come out maybe later this year i'll probably call it the commodore years or something like that
1: nice well yeah if you, if you do get any updates on that you want to share with us you know we'd love to uh, chat to you when it's ready
0: yeah okay
1: awesome thank you very much Antony.
0: Cheers, tony cheers right. thanks dan thanks for having...